Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A very warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the business headlines for Wednesday the 30th of March. Global stocks rallied and oil prices fell after Russia said it would drastically reduce combat operations after meaningful progress was made in peace talks between Russia and Ukraine in Istanbul. Turkey's foreign minister said the talks yielded the most significant progress since the war began. However, President Biden expressed scepticism and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said there was a difference between what Russia says and does. The U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo said yesterday that the world's biggest companies have a choice to make over whether to do business in Russia or in Western allied nations. He said it was clear that the U.S. dollar, euro and pound were the backbone of the global financial system and anyone wanting to work in those currencies had to participate in our sanctions. Shanghai yesterday reported 96 confirmed COVID cases, almost double the previous day's tally, and a new record of 4,381 asymptomatic cases. Shanghai has entered the third day of a citywide lockdown this morning. The local government said it will strengthen financial support for SMEs and other eligible firms. Total aid from the Shanghai government to help businesses affected in the form of tax incentives, rent rebates, cuts in fees and exemptions could total 140 billion yuan. That's 22 billion US dollars. The latest release of China's Beige Book shows borrowing by Chinese businesses plunged in the first quarter and interest rates on loans surged to a record high, despite the People's Bank of China encouraging more lending. Only 16% of the companies surveyed applied for loans in the first three months of the year. That's the lowest since the quarterly poll began in 2012. The average interest rate for bank loans rose to 8.5% from 6.1% in the fourth quarter of 2021. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Alicia Garcia-Herrero and the Tixis, Martin Henniker from St. James's Place Wealth Management, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite rose to more than two-month highs after Russia said it would drastically reduce combat operations around Kiev and the northern city of Cheniv. The S&P 500 index gained 1.2% to 4,632. The Dow Industrials jumped 338 points to 35,294. The Nasdaq Composite Index climbed 1.8% to 14,620. In Europe, the regional stock 600 index added 1.7%, taking it to its highest closing level since February the 17th before Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. The stock's auto sector sub-index rose 6% and the bank's sub-index jumped 3.8% to turn positive for the month on hopes that an end to the conflict would boost the Eurozone's economic outlook. The UK's FTSE 100 jumped 0.9% higher. Tech shares led Hong Kong higher for a second day. The Hang Seng Index rose 243 points, or 1.1%, to 21,928. The Tech Index rallied 2.5%, and Hong Kong stocks have recovered 640 billion US dollars now in the rebound from the sell-off earlier this month. The Shanghai Composite fell a third of a percent to 3,203 as investors worried about the lockdown of Shanghai on the national economy. 
Sunak China, the country's third largest property developer, tumbled over 17% in Hong Kong after the company said it wouldn't be able to release its financial statements for 2021 by the March 31st deadline and trading in the stock will be suspended from April the 1st. In Shenzhen, Chinese property developer Yango Group tumbled by the daily limit of 10% after the company failed to make repayments of several bonds due to a temporary liquidity squeeze. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 2% lower and this morning is at $111.93 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,914 an ounce. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note fell seven basis points to 2.40%. And the yield on two-year Treasury notes briefly rose above the yield on 10-year notes for the first time since August 2019, a move that's closely watched by policymakers and investors as a potential indicator of a recession. And the spread between the two-year and 10-year yields, which economists see as a more predictive of a potential recession, also narrowed and came close to inversion on Tuesday. In the currency markets, the US dollar tumbled to a two-week low. The euro climbed 0.9% against the dollar to $1.11. The Japanese yen rose 0.8% to 122.9 versus the dollar. Sterling is worth $1.31 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 25 cents. On the mainland, the Chinese yuan is at 6.375 against the dollar. And Bitcoin slipped 1% to $47,500. In Asian stock markets this morning, uh, a bit of a mixed picture. The SX200 in Australia up, uh, uh, up about half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea up half a percent. And futures markets indicating a gain of about 300 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. It's 8.09. Let's welcome our guests. We have on the phone Alicia Garcia-Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis. Morning, Alicia. Good morning. And also with us, Martin Henniker, who is Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Morning to you, Martin. Good morning, Peter. Pleasure to be back. Thank you very much. And over in uh, the US, in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondents, as we always do on a Wednesday morning. <laughs> Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Barry, I want to start with you, actually. Um, the U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary, Wally Adimeo, said yesterday that the world's biggest companies have a choice to make over whether to do business in Russia or in Western allied nations. He said firms could choose to help Russia or do business with the 30 countries that have imposed sanctions um, instead. And he said it was clear that the U.S. dollar, the euro and the pound were the backbone of the global financial system. And anyone wanting to work in those currencies had to participate in our sanctions. I wonder what you make of that uh, that warning and also the news that maybe um, there's possibility of some sort of truce between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Well, I think it's very important. And certainly uh, Wally Adeyemo is the key player on the American side. He's the deputy treasury secretary. And he was the one who coordinated with the Europeans and the Japanese on these sanctions. So not surprisingly, he's saying, look, let's play ball. Let's everybody get on the same wavelength here and make sure that our companies are not active in Russia. Now, just take McDonald's as a, as a starter. 12,000, I think that's the number. 12,000 outlets across Russia, this vast country. Well, they've, they've said, yes, we'll do it, but no, we're not doing it straight away. 
I mean, this is a tremendous big loss for McDonald's if they simply cut off Russia from hamburgers. And I think the same applies to other fast food chains, and it applies to some of the other European firms that are very active there. Renault, for example, is manufacturing cars in what was uh, Togliatigrad. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. But I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's going to take time to make this work. And it does show, for one thing that's very clear, Peter, that Mr. Adeyemo wants the sanctions to work better than they have. For example, the ruble has recovered. I'm sure he's not uh, very happy about that. As to what you say about uh, the Ukraine situation, you know, the absent party in Istanbul between the Turks uh, who were chairing the talks and the Ukrainians and the Russians was any representation from Western Europe and the United States. Because if we're going to have some kind of a, an eventual ceasefire, which seems a, a long way away, and the Ukrainians are insisting that their neutrality, if that's what's going to come out, is going to be guaranteed. Well, it'd be guaranteed by the Europeans and the Americans. So it's a positive sign, but there's a long way to go. This um, warning from Wally Adiemo, do you think it was a warning also directed specifically at China? No, I don't. I think that, uh, look, yes, the Americans are making a lot of noise about China. But my goodness, on that very long land border between the two countries. That cannot be monitored by the Americans or the Europeans. And I think they're really just concerned about military goods going into Russia from China, which is probably easier to detect from satellite photographs. But no, I don't think the Americans are going to move against the Chinese. Now, I might be all wrong on that, but that's, that's certainly my perception. Alicia, what, what, do you think there's a realistic concern that China could get dragged into this uh, conflict and, and be hit with uh, U.S. and European sanctions? Um, I think the most likely scenario is that China won't be caught because China has been extremely careful. Um, in fact, the narrative and the actions have nothing to do. Uh, China looks very pro-China on its statement or pro-Russian on its statement, but at the same time, banks or even Sinopec, you know, are delaying projects in Russia and not giving letters of credit. So they're very, being very careful. But there's a limit, though, and that's where the risk lies. Hmm. And the limit is the, um, if China uh, thinks it's likely that the regime in Russia might change uh, towards um more democratic regime. I think that's the limit of, I think, what China could take. And there, uh, I would imagine that support would be given to Putin, and that's where, you know, secondary sanctions at least could hit uh, China. But I, I think, you know, given what we are seeing lately, or at least last night, last night uh, we are further away from that scenario. If there were sanctions, would it hurt China's economy? It would hurt all of us, because... China is 10 times bigger than Russia, so it would certainly hit, uh, hit China um, strongly, no doubt about it. But the point is that every single company in the world would be hit, I mean, at least the largest, who, which all operate directly and indirectly with China. So I think it's very unlikely that we can conduct sanctions similar to those for Russia <coughs> on China. Martin, what are your thoughts? Do you think there's a risk here? 
that the world could split into a couple of trading blocks. You have the West uh, and its allies on one side, and then you have China, you have Russia, uh, maybe some Middle Eastern countries on, on the other side. Well, first of all, I, I would really uh, hope personally that those latest developments might, might lead to some sort of peaceful solution uh, there. At the same time, though, uh, I'd also like to point out that you know, quite a number of countries are still buying Russian commodities. Uh, you know, for, for example, India has been increasing oil purchases um, at, at discounts. And partly that's driven with an eye to inflationary risks in their, in their own countries. Food prices, you know, are going up. Obviously, we know the, the commodity run. And um, even in the EU, it's a similar picture. And in the U.S., you might have noticed that actually... Uh, just very recently, some of those tariff, tariff exclusions um, were, were reinstated in, in, in another sort of positive signal of hopeful, some, hopefully some de-escalation. And I think the U.S. might also be doing that with an eye on the inflationary picture. And I think that the world could really do, you know, without all these things um, falling apart and tackle some of these um, difficult issues together. To me, as I have been pointing out, in the last few interviews as well. Um, I think inflationary risks are still massively underestimated today. Actually, uh, just yesterday we had the, the conference board consumer confidence report out in the U.S. Um, inflation jumped an another time to a record high inflationary expectation, 7.9%. And that's still a lot higher than the 0.5% rate we are seeing now, implying massive negative real interest rates. And it's also a lot higher, even if you price in nine hikes um, by, by year end, that would lead us to 2.42% in US rates, still massively negative real interest rates. And to investors, I think that's one of the main, main concerns to be watching out for. And it sort of suggests then that the Fed is still well behind the curve, isn't it? If you apply the, the Taylor rule, um, which uh, Professor John Taylor came up with, I think back in the 19, uh, 1970s, um, the Fed needs to hike rates by about 11.5% to get back to normal, according to that rule. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, well pointed out there. And, you know, similarly, I, I will point to the fact that the last time in the 1980s, uh, the U.S. consumer price inflation was 7.9%, was which, uh, which uh, matches this conference board consumer expectation number also for the next 12 months. But the last uh, time the actual consumer price inflation hit 7.9% in the U.S., uh, the Fed funds rate was actually 15%, even higher than what mm. you just um, quoted. Why isn't this happening today? I suspect that one of the key difference differences is that debt is really very high in a number of major countries and so central banks never talk about that they just talk about the economy versus inflation and but if that is very high you have sort of a limited room to maneuver or otherwise it could risk a debt crisis and most clearly you have been seeing that in the eurozone uh, recently whenever the ecb talks a little bit tougher um, yields on italian uh, bonds greek bonds immediately spike uh, and and that sort of shows Mm. Uh, Barry, yeah. the debt in the US, it's, uh, it's past $30 trillion last month. Despite that, President Biden wants to go and spend even more. 
<laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. Listen, I, I really agree with what Martin has just said. Uh, uh, the debt problem in uh, Europe and, and certainly in the United States. I mean, here is the United States uh, budget deficit as a percentage of GDP. We In 2020, it was 15%. 2021, 11%. This year, it's going to be 7%. And now there's going to be another trillion-dollar uh, deficit in this budget, which, by the way, is just a blueprint. It's not going to happen this way. Peter, I wanted to just add one thing to what you said about foreign currency reserves. I think China is going to be the winner in whatever happens in Ukraine because you've seen the dollar, the euro, and the pound all weaponized. In other words, a message goes out to say if you have foreign currency reserves in those currencies, then you can't touch them in mm. the case of Russia. That's, that's a pretty powerful message. And I think that almost begs for alternatives to be developed at a faster pace. Alicia, do you think the Chinese yuan could get weaponized? We're seeing declines in Asian currencies, particularly the Japanese yen. Does that put pressure on the Chinese currency as well? Absolutely. Um, actually, um, if uh, the Chinese currency hasn't fallen more than the yen, it's simply because it's non-convertible currency and it's not as exposed to swing for obvious reasons. But, you know, we've, uh, we've experienced the largest outflows of portfolio flows on record in China in March. So we know where, what is the direction of travel. On, uh, on that point, I just want to add to, to this idea that, you know, the, the Western currencies are being weaponized. And I fully agree with that. There's no alternative. There's clearly no alternative yet, and, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing with the, with the renminbi. It's really very hard to think of a currency that that is not weaponized, because any currency that is not convertible is a weapon. It can be used against the investor's interest, whether it's to exit a certain asset or to enter a certain asset, and that's much more common than a sanction. So, so we are really comparing Apple and Pierce here when we say that uh, fully convertible currencies are being weaponized. They are, but they are still far less weaponized than currencies that are not convertible. Mm. And what does the Bank of Japan do? It's in a real hole here, isn't it? Because it's trying to maintain uh, 10-year bond yields at a quarter of a percent when the Fed has made it very clear uh, that rates are going to go much, much higher uh, this year. And, and, uh, and in the process, it's sacrificing the yen. It's almost, it's got a dilemma, hasn't it? Absolutely. Um, and this is the idea of uh, divergence of Eastern uh, central banks, uh, monetary policies, whether it's the PBOC or the BOJ. Uh, and that um, idea of distancing themselves from the Fed seems not to be working. We're seeing it with outflows from China. We're seeing it uh, uh, with the 10-year JGBs uh, clearly pushing up, uh, pushing beyond the ceiling. I don't think the BOJ will need to move the ceiling. Our call is that it be at least a percentage point. Uh, there's no point in increasing it just like, slightly because we, the direction of travel is, is really very high uh, given what's going to happen in, with the Fed. Martin, what are your thoughts on, on what the Bank of Japan does here? It's, um, it's got itself in a bit of a mess, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. But, um, you know, you might just see a problem there that Europe is also steering into and some other countries. And 
you know, rather than sort of when you talk about currencies and what different currencies might do versus each other, to me, given the world being increasingly interconnected and given that we have um, quite a number of large countries with, with rather high and arguably unsustainable debt now, um, I think the main theme still, you know, for the for the coming years and, and very possibly in the medium to long term too, I think people still think this inflation is transitory, but I think it's just coming through and might might not be even in the medium to long term, which means that long term bond yields might still be um, might still be too low. But my main point is we might see all currencies, you know, inflating pretty much together. You see PPI uh, prices, producer prices, which are a leading indicator all around the world, pretty much 10 percent uh, and 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 up. And so, from an investor's point viewpoint, if if one can tolerate um, some uh, degree of volatility and risk uh, in the shorter, medium term. Uh, one has got a, a, a time frame and volatility tolerance uh, where, where one can accept it. We think that equities over time might be a better way to hedge against those um, uh, currency risks. Even for the yen, you actually see, yet again, might drop a bit, but equity valuations compared with the rest of the world are quite reasonably attractive, and some of those easing measures might not be fully priced in. Uh, in my view, for example, the tax cuts that were announced earlier this month of 1.5 trillion, um, bringing it to a total over the last five years where we have seen five years of cuts to a package that's actually larger than the one on Trump. Even what you were talking about uh, earlier, uh, Peter, about the borrowing report, the Chinese page book, uh, if you dig deeper into it, there was actually a lot of pent-up demand for loans from companies that just didn't pull through with it yet at the current rates. But if there's a bit more easing, I think, uh, overall, the Chinese economy might not be doing too bad. And, and is that the reason this inflation hedge, equity is being seen maybe as an inflation yeah. hedge, because you, you certainly don't want to be in cash if inflation is surging. Is that the reason maybe why US stocks are rather bizarrely uh, massively outperforming bonds? You're seeing this surge in bond yields, which normally uh, hits stocks pretty hard. Yes, I think that's that might very well be one reason that there's an increasing realization of this principle of lying. You know, those things don't always happen immediately uh, 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 with companies putting up prices directly in a linear way across the board. But over time, basically, that's what's happening. Uh, companies just put up prices for goods and services they produce in line with inflation. And so they can form part of an inflation hedge basket, uh, definitely. Another reason for them having hold up quite relatively strong is that actually when you look at um, the forward indicators of, of, um, of rate movements, interest rate movements, the market actually projects that after those nine hikes, we will see three cuts in 2023 mm. to 2024 as the Fed, maybe some other central bank, gets stuck with the weakening economy, um, if, if not the debt issue as well. Alicia, what are your thoughts here on this big bond sell-off uh, that we're seeing around the world, in fact, um, but yet equities outperforming? Do you, do, you, do you agree that maybe equities are being seen here at the moment as a good inflation hedge? And is that something, that outperformance, can it continue? I think the reason is that, uh, I mean, I hear the inflation hedge, but I don't think that's the whole thing because you could, See more of a move to real assets, at least partially. Of course, real assets can't fully substitute the the liquidity in the equity market. But I think what what really is happening here is that we're not really 
appalling when we see terrible results. Yeah, and that I mean, corporate profits are, 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 are quite quite decent. So, in a way, we're not yet seeing, and this is the key in my view, whether the Fed's um, the Fed's hikes will really hurt the U.S. economy massively, and and therefore. Uh, corporate profits. We're not yet clear about, uh, I mean, at uh, Texas, our uh, chief economist, Joe Lavonia, thinks it will, and that the Fed is going, you know, is, is making a policy mistake. But many others don't agree on that. So I think, uh, bef- I mean, until we see evidence of, of a really the end of a cycle and, um, and the U.S. economy doing poorly, and certainly corporates doing poorly, I think we will still be betting on equities. I think that's where we are. Um, Barry, this is the concern, isn't it, in the in the U.S. that the Fed uh, is acting too late, but now doing too much to try and overcompensate. <laughs> yes. And as a result, um, they're going to raise interest rates sharply, send the U.S. into recession, and then the market is betting that by the end of next year they'll be cutting rates again. Well, there you are. I think Alicia said it well. Uh, You've got a situation the Fed is trying to thread the needle into a soft landing. I think you've got to continue to raise rates. That's pretty clear that the Fed is going to do so. But look, just to respond to Martin, Martin, commodities may fall back if we get some ceasefire in Ukraine. Then oil prices probably would dive on the expectation that the sanctions could be lifted. And then you've got slower growth coming in the States, certainly in Europe and in China. So all of that might combine to ease some of the inflationary pressure that you speak of. Martin, what do you say to that? You know, I'm still concerned on inflation nonetheless, even if those tensions, you know, as I mentioned, I would very much hope, you know, ease in on the Russia-Ukraine side. When I look at the producer prices, I mentioned they're like above 10% around the world. Um, I, uh, the Italy figure for January, actually, if you're looking at domestic producer prices, was 41.8% in January before Russia even got underway. And yet you have um, 2.53% on 30-year Italian yield. Um, and the ECB basically not doing much against it. So I do feel that um, we are not in a normal environment where hikes cause a recession, then they walk it back, um, because uh, I, I doubt that inflation will be falling back very significantly given those forward-looking numbers. And I still fear that this is underestimated, uh, particularly by sort of longer-term fixed interest uh, investors mm. and uh, something to be very careful about. Alicia, do you want to be the final arbiter of this? If um, if there was a ceasefire in Ukraine, um, oil prices and other commodity prices start to fall back, uh, would that be the end of our inflation concerns or are there still worries? No, I think COVID in China is much bigger than Ukraine, to be very frank. Uh, I very much worry about uh, bottlenecks coming from closed ports. We have been war last year. I mean, that's big, you know, it's, it's the, the, the manufacturing capacity of China can't compare with Russia or Ukraine, and that means that it's not only about inputs, i.e. commodities, but much more than that is about, you know, China exports 30% of global intermediate goods. Just imagine. Um, so I, I don't think we're out of the woods with, uh, with this ceasefire, unfortunately. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts and input this morning.
You heard there Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at um, the Tixis. Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investments, Advisory and Communications at St. James's Place Wealth Management. And RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. Let me give you an update on the uh, on the markets for um, for this morning. First of all, over in Australia, the SX200 is up three quarters of one percent. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan down about a third of a percent. The Cosby is rising up 0.4 percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is certainly going to rise at the open, jumping about 300 points according to futures markets. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The news is up next, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton. The weather forecast uh, for this morning. Sunny periods, maximum temperature will be around 25 degrees. Sunny periods tomorrow, rather warm during the day. And then it will become cool and windy with a few rain patches on Friday and Saturday. Temperature right now is 21 degrees, 76% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half. Here's um, Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. The government is toughening punishment for people who refuse to comply with its compulsory COVID-19 notices in order to strengthen what officials call the deterrent effect. From Thursday, fines of $10,000 for ignoring testing notices will be more than doubled to $25,000 with a jail sentence of six months. People who fail to comply with quarantine or isolation orders could be slapped with a fine of $10,000 and a six-month jail term. Overseas, Russia has said it will drastically reduce its military activity in the Kiev and Chernihiv regions of northern Ukraine following peace talks in Turkey. Russia's deputy defense minister said the aim was to increase mutual trust. Ukraine's armed forces say although individual Russian units have been withdrawn from those two regions, Moscow is continuing its full-scale armed aggression. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt reports. Peace talks in Istanbul earlier appeared to offer some progress. But many questions remain unanswered. Firstly, it is yet unclear how extensive the reduction of Russian military activity in the Kiev and Chernihiv regions may be. The Ukrainian military says some individual units have been withdrawn. Secondly, Ukraine and its allies will want to assess in the days ahead whether what Russia labels a confidence-building measure can be taken at face value. Ukraine's proposals for peace centre around a stated willingness and conditional on approval in a referendum to renounce ambitions to join NATO in return for binding international security guarantees. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has hailed what he called the positive signals from the day's talks but said those signals did not drown out the explosion of Russian shells. South Korea says an intercontinental ballistic missile launched last week by North Korea wasn't the new advanced model Pyongyang claimed it was. The BBC's Will Leonardo explains. Last week, Pyongyang hailed the successful launch of its newest missile, the Hwasung-17, an ICBM said to have a range of 15,000 kilometres. Footage was released of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, apparently overseeing the test, dressed in a leather jacket and sunglasses. But analysts now say weather and light in the video didn't match up with the conditions. A few days before, a projectile had exploded in mid-air over Pyongyang, reportedly causing damage as it showered the North's capital with debris. Today, South Korean defence officials told MPs they presumed this was the Hwasung-17 and the test last week, an older model. More than half a billion U.S. dollars of cryptocurrency has been stolen from a digital ledger used by players of the popular online game Axie Infinity. 
The game's makers were alerted yesterday when one user was unable to withdraw his money. The Ronin Network blockchain had been targeted by hackers who appear to have got hold of private keys to withdraw digital funds. It added that most of the hacked funds were still in the thieves' wallet. It's one of the largest thefts ever of cryptocurrency. You're listening to the news on RTHK. 